Hey there, thanks for watching The Young Turks. I'm Brooke Thomas and as always, very happy to be sitting in on the conversation. We're gonna talk a little Golden Globes action. We're gonna talk about the award ceremony, representation, maybe the lack thereof. Is it new? Are things changing? You know, I want to get your thoughts also. So make sure to leave them in the comments. Tweet us. First up, we are talking to Brooke Obi, the managing editor at Shadow and Act. Brooke, nice to meet you. Nice name too. Yes, love your name. Thank you so much for having me. <laughs> yes, I am very glad to have you. I actually really like Shadow and Act, and I think that um, it's pretty important. It's something important for the industry to have. It's an important platform, but a lot of people, I think, maybe our viewers may not be completely familiar with it. So, first off, I want you to tell us a little bit about Shadow and Act. Sure, Shadow and Act is the premier digital destination for content, black entertainment news, covering film, TV, Broadway and web series. And our whole mission is to uplift and to highlight black content and black content creators. That's awesome. And um, I was uh, talking to one of our producers, Angel, and she had a little bit of a conversation with you and then it got us thinking. And I definitely, I wanted to ask you about your ideas as far as how we can, and I think you use this phrase with her, uh, decolonize Hollywood, right? Absolutely. I mean, I'm I'm in a group of people who thinks we need to decolonize everything, but working in the <laughs> entertainment space in particular, um, decolonizing Hollywood is very, very important. And so thinking about how to decolonize Hollywood, we have to think about how we've been conditioned um, to think of these institutions. Um, so we look at something like the Golden Globes, and then we see how consistently white these nominees are and the uh, projects that they're awarding and the people that they're snubbing. And you know it it hurts. Um, you have something like when they see us, which was you know Ava DuVernay's um, mini series on the Exonerated Five that uh, literally changed these five men's lives, mm-hmm. and um, you know was uh, trending worldwide. Um, for three days when it when it first came out, um, and is just such a powerful, powerful series. And to see that completely snubbed by the Golden Globes, you know, we start to you know that that's something that hurts. Um, but when we're thinking about decolonizing, we're not thinking of looking to these awards shows and these institutions that were never created for us in the first place to honor us, to see our talent, to see us as you know the creatives that we are. And so what that means is to I understand how important these award shows are and these nominations are as far as helping people's careers. So what we have to do is think about ways to connect with each other, connect to the money, connect to producers, connect creatives to who they to the talent that they need to be connected to so that we can start actually making our own projects and not relying on these institutions to validate the work that we're doing. Can we do that, both though? Sure. Um I mean I think when we're waiting for these institutions to change, uh-huh. like that, they're not going to change on their own, right? right? Yeah. Um, and so you have these movements that are happening. Um, we had Oscar So White um, that brought about, you know, some change in the voting body of the Oscars, um, you know, thanks to April Rain, and and those things are great, but we're still seeing. Uh, Green Book still won Best Picture this year, um, and so you're you're still seeing this overwhelmingly white uh, majority of people who are the ones who are deciding what 
uh, is valuable in Hollywood. And so this is just gonna take a really, really long time if we're looking for these institutions to start validating us. And so the ways that we need to be moving now is to think about how we can connect with each other outside of these institutions. And so we have like Shadow and Act had the Rising Awards, our first Rising Awards in February of this year, we honored Barry Jenkins with the Game Changer Award uh-huh. and 32 Rising Award winners in the industry in four different categories and connected them to people, to producers, to other creatives so that they can start making their projects and go around these gatekeepers and stop waiting for people to say that they are worthy and say that their talent deserves to be seen. I completely understand that. Right, let's uh, even though even though we are here to talk Golden Globes, let's let, I, I get what you're saying completely, and I like that. Um, I guess we do. Let's break down the Golden Globes and what happened because you touched a little bit on when they see us. And um, as everyone knows, this week the Hollywood Foreign Press Association they did announce the nominees for this year's show. And I, I mean, we we started talking about it already. There is a complete lack of representation when it comes to uh, people of color, when it comes to yeah. women. Um, uh, what were your thoughts first off, just when the list came out? Well, I'm not surprised. Okay, um, honestly, it's always it, it's always disappointing. I mean, a movie like Just Mercy. I think Just Mercy is the most revolutionary movie um, to be put out this year, yeah. and so to see it get paid dust is it's disappointing um, because there was so many great uh, performances in that. Um, but also the message in that I think is just so revolutionary. This um, idea of having us reimagine what punishment looks like mm-hmm. for people who have been convicted of crimes. Um, that's Just Mercy Falls, the story of Brian Stevenson, this uh, uh, a civil rights attorney fighting to get people off of death row. Um, it's such a powerful, powerful film that has been completely ignored. Um, starring Jamie Foxx, um, Michael B. Jordan, right, how uh, could Rob it- who ignores a movie starring those two? Like, what world are we living in? It, it, <laughs> right? Uh, it's 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 really really surprising um, and, and well disappointing, I would yeah. say, but but not so much surprising. But yes, you know, I, I think Regina King and Watchmen—that's mm-hmm. another revolutionary show. I mean, she's a superhero who fights white supremacy on HBO every Sunday night. A fantastic show. Damon Lindelof created that, um, and she was also ignored. Zendaya and Euphoria, um, another fantastic performance and fantastic show that was completely ignored. David Makes Man on Oprah Winfrey Network. Um, Terrell Alvin McCraney, who uh, created uh, Moonlight, um, he's the one that created David Makes Man, and that show as well, just completely ignored. So yeah. there was Lupita Nyong'o and us. There were fantastic performances by Black people, by people of color, that were completely ignored. Even um, the farewell, you know, that was nominated in the best uh, foreign film rather than best picture. Uh, when it's an A24 production, and Lulu Wang has been very clear that she sees her movie as an American film. <laughs> so it's been a consistent othering, I think. Every year we get a reminder that we are not who these award shows were created for, and that we need to do something else in order to get our projects made and seen by the public. That is a, a just such I think um, a great way to put it a complete othering and a reminder of that so often. Um, what were your thoughts about because we got the SAG Awards nominations out today and then the Critics Choice Award nominations earlier this week and they were different than the Golden Globe not too far off but different not as many snubs and I find that fascinating. 
Yeah, not as many snubs in the Critics' Choice. Um, I, I think there was a lot more um, of diversity in, in, in the Critics' Choice for sure. Um, mm-hmm. When they see us finally getting their nomination and Jarrell Jerome who won the Emmy uh, for When They See Us uh, Best Actor in a Limited Series is, is getting nominated in the Critics' Choice as well. Um, and so and even you know Zendaya, uh, Regina King. So there, there's a lot more um, diversity in the Critics' Choice and I, I'm, I think that critics are more likely to watch the movies that were sent. I mean, <laughs> I, I think that's the other thing too. I feel like with the Golden Globes, there were just a lot of people who voted who just maybe didn't watch anything other than you know those top movies that everybody was talking about, right. um, which is disappointing. Um, but yeah, we get a lot of screeners as critics. We get a ton of screeners. And it it takes a lot of time, but I mean, especially someone like me who I, I vote in a couple of these um, organizations, and I take it very seriously and I watch yeah. everything. So I, I wish that was the common practice, but it's really not. And you know what? What I find like fascinating, like when we talk about like Darrell Jerome and episode four, just specifically of when they see us, I think that what's frustrating for me and I think for a lot of people is that when someone like Darrell Jerome is recognized, it's like, whew, okay. It's almost surprising, even though that should be a given, right? Yes, yes. But I think too, when you're looking at the exonerated five, these are men whose lives were destroyed as children. Um, they were vilified for so long. So to create some uh, this this piece of work, it was already going to be risky. It needed somebody like Ava DuVernay, who was so unapologetically black, so unapologetic in the way that she creates her art. Um, that she was able to tell the complete truth about this story and not worry about who was gonna be uh, put off by it or anything like that and not worry about these awards. Mm-hmm. Um, and so thankfully the story was told in a manner that honors these five men's lives and what they've been through over the past 30 years and gave them some sort of peace and healing, which Ava has said is the prize for her. Yeah. Um, but I, I was, I never expect for revolutionary works of art that center black people and provide us with our humanity and 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 highlight white supremacy and its impact on black people. I never expect white supremacist institutions to honor those things. So I was actually pleasantly surprised by not only Jarrell Jerome getting nominated, but also him winning. But that was again, the only award. There were so many losses yeah. when they see us at the Emmys as well. That's very true. Um, uh, one more question I wanted to get uh, your thoughts about like no women directors going behind the scenes. And, and that's what my thought was with Ava DuVernay still walking this earth and working. How? Right. You know? Right. And, and it's, you know, and it's, uh, there is, I think, and I saw the, the HFPA's um, response, the president's response mm-hmm. to the criticism that there were, there were no women and him saying, we just vote by the film. And it just so happens that, you know, all the films that you all like and think are the best were created by men. Um, you know, it's, uh, I think it should hopefully be a rallying cry for all of us to finally understand that fighting for validation in these institutions that are outdated, that were never created for us is not going to be the solution. If we can all as people of color, as women, as marginalized communities come together and create our own projects and support each other's projects and help them get to light, then we can kind of all as a group. I mean, what would the what would these award shows be without 
these high profile celebrities yeah. that prop them up. So if we're all divesting from these and saying, I'm not actually gonna participate in uh, you know, an award show where all the nominees are white um, in my category, that's not something I wanna be a part of, that would start I think quite a revolution in Hollywood. Brooke Obi, managing editor at Shadow and Act. I want to have you back. There's so much more I want to talk to you about. I want to. I would like to dig <laughs> deep into Watchmen and how it is being perceived. Oh my gosh! Yes, I love Watchmen so much. Me yes. too. Okay, so we're I gonna can. have to have you back on to talk a little bit about that <laughs> okay. and much, much more. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much, Brooke. All right. More up on the conversation. I'm actually hopping out of the seat, and Anna Kasparian is going to be here. So stay with us. Welcome to the conversation. Joining me now is congressional candidate for Texas's 31st district, Dr. Christine Edie Mann. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me tonight, Anna. So you are running for the 31st district in Texas. This is actually not the first time you ran for this congressional district. You actually ran previously to unseat the Republican Congressman John Rice. Uh, John Rice Carter. And so uh, tell me what happened in the previous election and what are you doing differently this time around? In the previous cycle, I made it into the Democratic runoff with MJ Hagar, who uh, decided then to run for Senate. And so we really are um, picking up what we did in the last cycle, building grassroots networks, um, making sure that we have the resources that we need to take on an entrenched uh, Republican like John Carter. He's been in office now for 18 years, uh, ever since the district was um, uh, created. It was created for him. And so we're building on the networks that we created last cycle. We've done uh, voter registration. We have um, joined uh, groups throughout the district to make sure that they know that we are running this race again. Uh, we brought in a team of local activists, people who have worked on Beto's campaign uh, and other campaigns across the state. And so we've just got a really robust uh, campaign going on and uh, uh, we're going to win. Absolutely, you are incredibly strong on the issues. You come from a very progressive perspective on healthcare, which I want to delve into a little bit. So you're a successful physician, and you know, usually when it comes to people who work in the healthcare industry, I mean, as a doctor, I'm always curious what the perspective is of physicians. Single payer healthcare has been smeared over and over again in the mainstream press, but you are supportive of single payer healthcare. Why is that? Well, I've been supportive since 2009. I started speaking in favor of universal coverage and single payer back when the Affordable Care Act was being debated. Um, and have been an advocate for that ever since and haven't changed that stance at all. And the reason is, is because as a primary care doctor, I see what happens to people when they don't have care. Just this week, I had a woman who came in who has diabetes and she didn't have care for two years because she did not have insurance coverage. And uh, she's starting to have complications from diabetes because she didn't have her sugars controlled, couldn't afford her medicines, couldn't see a doctor. And I've been watching that happen for two decades. And I am tired of watching from the outside, seeing that happen. Um, and I, what I've learned over the past several years is that um, through my activism in other areas, working on the outside 
makes you feel good, but it's going to be more effective to be in Congress in a legislative position to be able to move the policies forward that we need to protect people. Uh, there should be no question that every American should have coverage for health care from the minute that they are born till the minute that they die. No, no questions asked. Absolutely. You know, oftentimes, especially when it comes to a general election, I think that voters tend to think that's the most important election to focus on. But really, that's just the executive branch. You still need to have empowered progressives in Congress who are actually going to help, let's say, a progressive president execute some of these proposals. And of course, single payer would be one of them. So can you talk to me a little bit about what your thoughts are on a public option versus single payer health care? Because you know, there's an argument from some of the more centrist Democrats in Congress in regard to a public option and how they think that would be a better way to go about reforming our health care. Do you agree? You know, it's really frustrating for me and um, watching the debates going on and hearing from uh, my own side that we are willing to accept something that does not cover everybody. Mm -hmm. And that has always been my bottom line. The program needs to cover every American without gaps in care for pre-existing conditions or because you lose your job or because you want to start your own business. There just should never be a gap. And that's my concern with other plans is that we're going to have a gap and we're still going to leave people out in the cold without that coverage. So I'm going to push for the most robust plan that I can get past with my bottom line. My red line is universal coverage. Some might argue that in a state like Texas, and I know it's quickly becoming blue. It's it's really a purple state at this point. But some might argue that you know it's it's tough to get some of the conservative voters in your district on board for something like Medicare for all. What's your response to that? Well, first of all, you do not have to get every Republican on board to win in a district like mine. If you have all of the Democrats on board, you only need a percentage of Republicans to get across the finish line. And in surveys that we do, about 23% of Republicans are in favor of a government plan for health care. So it is not a losing argument. It is something that we can build on from a Democratic perspective and bring in those people who are open to it on the Republican side. And there's actually higher numbers in the independents. So yep. I, I've been doing this for a long time and explaining to people for a long time why this is so important. And I'm gonna to continue to speak out and I know that we can win. This is not an issue that's gonna lose an election. I love it. We're speaking with Dr. Christine Edie Mann. She's running for the 31st district in Texas. And I, I, I wanna just touch on a quote that I read of yours that I thought was powerful and it was incredibly impressive. You said, I've had many patients say why, why would you do this? Why would you put this time and energy in? Why would you wanna go into Washington, into that swamp and that quagmire? And I asked them, are there still children in cages on the border? And I thought that was a powerful statement as someone who wants to be part of Congress, someone who's from Texas. So can you elaborate a little bit on your thoughts on immigration policy? 
Yeah, so um, I spent time at the border earlier this year. I volunteered at a clinic and shelter for asylum seekers who had just come out of Customs and Border Patrol custody. And this was right as the Remain in Mexico policy was going into effect. So during the week that I was there, I was able to meet with people who had traveled thousands of miles, leaving everything that they had, selling everything that they owned to come and seek refuge in the United States. And when that policy went in place and we started sending people back over into Mexico, uh, we didn't know what was happening at this clinic that I was working at. So I traveled into Nuevo Laredo to try and find out where these immigrants were ending up. And it was horrible. We saw children sleeping on the streets, um, pregnant women who had had all their medications taken away from them. And as time progressed, what we learned was that cartels would kidnap people who were migrants. They would use them for human trafficking uh, and, and try and get ransom out of their families. And so there's so many pieces to the immigration issue. I think we all can say that the system is broken, but there are some policies that have gone into effect under the Trump administration that are horrific. Uh, the Remain in Mexico policy is, is one of them. And there's another piece that I'm working on right now. I'm working with a nationwide consortium of uh, people who help refugees who have been uh, admitted from outside of the United States and have been allowed to come into the US. And as the Trump administration has reduced the numbers that are allowed, the infrastructure to support them has, has vanished. Mm -hmm. And so I am gonna be meeting with state legislators uh, this coming Friday um, to look at state level solutions because Texas is a state that accepts a lot of refugees. And so what we're gonna try and do is introduce legislation through Texas that can help maintain the infrastructure for refugees who are coming into the, the United States. And so uh, we have all of these issues, all of these policies that are just not working, that are keeping people who have a legitimate claim for refugee status, a legit, legitimate claim for asylum status. And they just, we're tr turning them away and we're treating them like they are criminals uh, when they are going through a legal process. So all of that needs to change. So let's say in an ideal world you win and you want to implement these policies. Uh, I wanna talk a little bit about how you intend to fight for them because yes. more often than not, unfortunately, uh, some of these progressive policies get the most pushback from uh, centrist Democrats in Congress. So what is your game plan to tackle these issues while fighting both conservatives in Congress and centrist Democrats? So my point of view is persuasion. I think we need to reframe this debate uh, and, and get away from using the word compromise. Mm -hmm. There's a place for compromise, but the job as a legislator is to persuade people. I'm very persuasive. My day job is to persuade people to get colonoscopies. So this is something that I have some negotiating skills in my uh, back pocket for. Uh, and I've actually worked locally to be able to enact things that have have been a public good. So when I first came to this district, I convinced the Round Rock City Council, a Republican mayor, a Republican council, to enact the city's first citywide smoking ban in restaurants and bars. And I didn't go in offering up all the concessions that I would make. I went in saying, this is what we need to do. This is why we need to do it. And let's talk about why we need to do it. And that's the approach that we need to be taking. You, you Negotiation 101, 
is you walk in asking for everything that you want. And then maybe you compromise, but you don't walk in saying, we're going to come to the middle on this. You come in from a position of strength. I love it. I love it. Uh, one final question for you. Uh, thoughts on money and politics. How are you funding your campaign? Well, so in the last cycle, I was very upset about the idea of money and politics. And I did no dedicated fundraising. I didn't hold any fundraisers. I raised $95,000 just through social outreach, social media outreach and so forth. And I was not able to um, finish and win. So I decided this time that I would go the traditional route. I do do fundraising. I have held some fundraisers. And my idea is that it has to be done right now because that is our campaign finance system. And so if I can get in Congress and change it, I'll, I'll take it. I will, I will do what I have to do to win. Uh, as long as it's not unethical or illegal. And uh, once I'm in, then I have that uh, that pulpit to be able to say, this is crazy. The way we fund campaigns is crazy. Um, it's wrong. It gives an unfair advantage to people who already have money and who already have connections. And it disenfranchises people who um, are from middle class and lower income families who want to be involved in politics and it needs to change. Are any of your donors, uh, you know, big dollar donors? If you call $2,800, which is the maximum mm -hmm. uh, as a big donor, that's the most money I've taken from any individual. Mm -hmm. um, I don't have any, I haven't taken any PAC money of any kind, even from uh, PACs that would be considered acceptable. Mm -hmm. um, most of my my um, donations are in the you know $100 to $250 range, and then our, our average donation is right around $95 right now. And we've had over 2,000 donations. So... Uh, there is a way to do it without going and, and asking for huge amounts of money. But the reality is, is this, these races are very expensive. And as progressives, if we want to win, we have to accept that that's the reality of the situation. Do what we have to do to get in, and then we can change things. All right, Dr. Christine Edie Mann, please check out more information about her candidacy by going to Christine Four. That's the number four Congress.com. Again, that's Christine Four Congress.com, and uh, there's also the link uh, that you can go to if you're interested in donating to her campaign, and also a link if you're interested in volunteering. Dr. Christine Mann, thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me on. Have a good evening. Thank you, you too. Thank you for watching the conversation. The post game with John Idarola is next.